This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for May 26, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this week we're continuing to see a drop in the number of new COVID-19 cases in the United States, despite the fact that many of the social restrictions that have been in place are being lowered. Undoubtedly, this drop in new cases is partly due to vaccination, The message is clear. Anyone who's eligible should receive the vaccine. Today, though, let's look at some of the difficult situations that clinicians may encounter. But before we get to that, there's a recent news item regarding a viral variant in the United Kingdom. What's happening there and why is that significant? Steve, it's been clear that one of the viral variants, the B1617 strain, is problematic. It's caused much of the devastating outbreak that's currently going on in India and is spread to other countries, including the UK. The UK has documented an increasing number of cases, largely because they're doing a very good job of surveillance in the UK, though the total number of COVID-19 cases continues to fall. Because of concerns about this variant, this week, Germany strictly limited travel from the UK. The UK has among the highest percentage of its population vaccinated in the world. So does this represent a failure of vaccination to control the spread of this variant? The story in the UK is a bit complicated, and that's because their protocol for administering vaccine is different from ours. There are very high rates of vaccination in the United Kingdom. But in the US, the guidance has been that vaccines should be administered according to the schedules that were tested in the phase three clinical trials. And that usually means that the second dose is given three or four weeks after the first dose. The UK has taken a different path. They've delayed second doses in order to conserve the amount of vaccine available so that there is a substantial fraction of people who've received only the first dose of vaccine. And we know that that provides some level of protection, but that the levels of protection are significantly lower than are seen after two doses. In addition, the UK has been very strictly sticking to an age-based vaccine administration schedule so that the very high rates of vaccination in older groups are not reflected in younger individuals. And since younger people have broader social contacts, they're likely to be more important for the spread of disease through the population. So Eric, I think a couple of important points emerge you know, given what's going on in the UK. First and foremost, I think we just are reminded that this is a respiratory virus that spread like a respiratory virus. We are all connected globally. So if the virus misbehaves anywhere in the world, then it can emigrate or migrate into other communities that are vulnerable. And whether they're vulnerable because of limited vaccination or they're vulnerable because the variant has properties that allow it to transmit more effectively and avoid some of the prior immunity is something that scientifically has to be continually evaluated. It speaks to what's going on in the UK. As you mentioned, their surveillance system allows them to detect transmission and the nature of the virus or viruses that are taking over becoming more dominant. And their sequencing capacity is very important so that new cases are identified, the nature of the virus being transmitted is clarified, and the implications then scientifically can be understood. 
And so I think on the one hand, it's very frustrating to see increases in transmission, particularly with a variant of concern. On the other hand, it is important that systems are set up to detect this and for the scientific community then to figure out the significance of these variants and the principles that allow it to expand more aggressively. I think it's worth calling out once again, the surveillance program in the UK, which has been so very impressive. And it gets back to the two questions we talked about around research capacity many, many months ago, back toward the beginning of the outbreak, where the US has a very decentralized system with the CDC largely providing advice and some material aid to local public health authorities. The UK has a much more top-down system and that works extremely well for things like this. The UK has excellent sequencing capacity, excellent scientific capacity. They have funders that are on board, uh, the Wellcome Trust. They have Public Health England, which has been a great coordinator. And that has led them to a very good sense of where the outbreak stands at any given point, a much better picture than we've had here. Here in the US, we have a tremendous scientific capacity. We have a lot of sequencers, but we don't really have the coordination and it's taken a long time for us to catch up in the surveillance area. As you point out, Eric, surveillance is critical, but it really is a global problem, not just a couple of countries. And that's something that collectively we have to think about as a scientific community. We are not safe from this virus anywhere if we're not addressing it everywhere. It really is able to move around the globe very easily. And that's something we're watching what's going on in India. We've discussed that before. But wherever there is massive amplification of virus, the potential for it to spread elsewhere is very, very high. And the potential for variants to emerge that can be more difficult to manage or escape prior immunity is very high. The issue of vaccines, and I know this is an area of discussion for many, you pointed out the issue of what is the best dosing schedule. There are dosing schedules that were studied as part of the clinical trials. Those are the dosing schedules we understand best. However, there are realities that we are dealing with in terms of limited supply and practicalities of deployment when different vaccine constructs may be available differentially in different communities So some mixing and matching is going on. There are some recent data that suggests that this can work reasonably well. There's also the issue of altering the regimens as to one versus two doses at one interval. Should we do boosters? These are all areas of very active scientific investigation. And hopefully these data as they emerge will help guide the best policy. Underlying this is the issue of vaccine availability and what can be done to increase global production so that there's more availability of the most efficacious vaccines with the inserts or antigens of greatest relevance. And that's something that is becoming clear we need to really enhance given the variants of concern that we're witnessing. A fundamental worry, of course, is that the existing vaccines might just be less effective against some of the viral variants. So what do we know about this new variant in the UK? We've got some preliminarily reassuring news on that score. Public Health England has put out non-peer-reviewed work that concluded that vaccines do provide protection against 
the B one six one seven two variant, which is the substrain, which has raised the most concern. They looked at real world effectiveness data and concluded that VNT one sixty two B two, the Pfizer vaccine, retained high efficacy, while Chadox one, the AstraZeneca vaccine, was effective but somewhat less so. It's early. But it does seem that these results broadly correlate with in vitro studies of antibody responses to vaccines. There was a study published recently in Nature Medicine in which the authors tried to answer the question of whether antibody levels induced by vaccination or by previous infection correlated with protection across a variety of vaccines in different studies. It's not an easy thing to look at because different studies use different methods to measure antibody levels and Phase three studies had slightly different definitions of efficacy. Nevertheless, trying to normalize as best they could, antibody levels as measured by assays involving the original Wuhan virus sequence did seem to roughly correlate with protection. There have now been a number of studies looking at the relationship between variant sequences and neutralizing antibody. Again, they're all different, but there does seem to be one lesson. Many of the variants are neutralized less well by serum induced by vaccination. And that's particularly true for the B1351 strain, which was first isolated in South Africa. But the value of the decline in neutralizing activity is roughly similar between different vaccines. To put it another way, if vaccine A induces an antibody response that is sevenfold less likely to neutralize a variant, then serum induced by vaccine B is also likely to produce about a sevenfold decrease in neutralization. I guess this isn't very surprising because almost all the vaccines that are in use right now use the same antigen, the viral spike protein. So the activity of any vaccine against any variant is likely to be determined by how well it induces protection against any other variant. More potent vaccines are more potent against all the variant strains. So Eric, you're Getting at a critical concept that we've discussed before, which is a correlate of protection. How do we determine if vaccine A is effective against COVID disease? And once we determine that, how do we understand the key immunologic parameters which predict that so that we can enhance that parameter? And the neutralizing antibody is incredibly attractive as a correlate of protection, but that still needs to be established. It may not be the same correlate for different vaccine platforms or different potential viral strains, depending on the divergence of the virus over time. So I think we appreciate the importance of neutralization and the cross-protection as we see divergent viral strains emerge. But there still is much to learn as to what protection really looks like immunologically. It also speaks to the question we discussed a little bit earlier about boosting and what is best done to make sure that one's immune status is as optimized as possible and stays optimized as different strains emerge. And that's something we're going to have to continue to learn throughout the rest of this year and next as we continue to understand the immunity to infection and to preventing clinically significant disease. I should point out that different vaccines are presenting the spike protein in different ways, and those will induce quantitatively different responses. In addition, there's some variation 
among the sequences that are being used for the spike protein that might also change the antibody response. The one vaccine which is different, which is in broad use right now, is the CoronaVac vaccine from China. That vaccine is an inactivated whole viral vaccine, whole viral particles. So it's conceivable that that one will not run in the same way as the others, in that there is antibody produced presumably against additional antigens beyond the spike protein. We have very little information about how well that works at this point. So only unpublished results of a few trials, which suggest that it may not be as potent as other vaccines in inducing immunity, but its ability to induce protection against variants remains to be seen. You point out the quantitative and you imply there are also qualitative differences and the nature of the T-cell immunity that's elicited, how broadly cross-reactive that may be to different viral variants or other factors that we need to better understand. But it may not be just a B-cell uh, property that leads to optimal control of this virus. And that's something that we don't have a lot of data on because T-cell studies are just so much more difficult to do in large scale compared to antibody studies. I'd like to ask about a group that may not respond to any of these vaccines. An enormous number of people either have immunosuppressing conditions or they're receiving therapies that suppress their immunity. When social measures like masking, social distancing were broadly instituted, these people were relatively protected. But how should clinicians who are caring for them think about keeping them safe now that the rules are changing? There's no one answer to this. And I'm sure that Lindsay, who cares for many patients with immunocompromising conditions, will have some thoughts about it. But I'd like to outline a few principles. First, there's an incredibly broad range of what we call immune suppression. There are different types of immunity, including innate immunity, antibody responses, cell-mediated immunity, and different conditions or different treatments can affect either one or any combination of these. Then there's a quantitative issue, the degree of immune suppression, which varies tremendously. For example, HIV patients with high CD4 counts are very different from those with low CD4 counts. In general, studies that have been done so far suggest that individuals with lower degrees of immune suppression generally respond pretty well to vaccines, including the COVID-19 vaccines. Second, it's really important to remember that there are very few contraindications to vaccination. Virtually everyone should receive vaccine whether or not they're immunocompromised. Some might respond less well to vaccination, but vaccination appears to be safe in just about everyone. And finally, the risk of contracting COVID-19 is directly related to how much virus is circulating in the community. The best protection for those who cannot be fully protected by vaccination is to interact with those who have themselves been vaccinated. So Eric, you take us to a place that I've spent decades thinking about, which is what is an immunosuppressive condition? We understand renal dysfunction, the creatinine, the GFR, liver dysfunctions a little more complicated. There's synthetic function, there's conjugative function, there are a variety of activities that the liver does. And then what is immunosuppression? You know, is it a short course of prednisone? Is it an autoimmune condition, perhaps with some intermittent therapy? Is it, you know, cancer and cancer undergoing treatment or a solid organ transplant or use of biologic therapies? 
So it's a very complicated arena to understand the immunostat or what is your level of immunocompetence. And that gets very tricky. What I think is implied that many of us think about who work at major cancer centers or with transplant patients are patients who have the most severe immunosuppression and perhaps are on chronic immunosuppressive medications such as calcineurin inhibitors or modest doses of glucocorticoids. And so that is something that we have to deal with in practice every day. When I think about vaccination in these populations, I divide it in two different concepts. One is safety. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that these vaccines that we're talking about have any safety concern that is different in our patients who might have some level of immunosuppression versus completely healthy individuals without comorbid medical conditions. Then there's the question of efficacy, is how well will these vaccines elicit an immune response and one that might be protective or partially protective? And that is an area of active investigation. It's very difficult to predict a priori. Some of the early data coming out suggest that certain treatments, such as anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies in particular, but therapies that may directly interrupt B-cell activation may substantially diminish the elicitation of neutralizing antibodies or antibodies against the spike protein. Whether or not that has a profound effect on protection or not is unknown. Many of us are concerned that it will. And so I think it's important in our patients who have a weakened immune system to vaccinate them, see no reason not to. But I would still counsel them, and we do counsel them, to continue maximal precautions to avoid exposure so that they don't have to find out how well their immune response was. What does maximal precautions mean? It depends on the infection force in the community around us. If there is substantial amount of community transmission, then I think our immunocompromised patients should avoid interactions in arenas where they may be exposed, such as congregate settings, indoor settings, what we've been discussing for many months. And so I think that it's not a simple question to answer. On the other hand, I think that there is no reason not to vaccinate our immunosuppressed patients and many reasons to do it. But we need to be careful about being overconfident that the vaccine works just as well in the context of a weakened immune system as in a normal immune system until we have more directive data. So what are the specific options for these individuals? Steve, it's very difficult to give specific advice in general. However, in our most immunosuppressed patients, I think achieving full vaccination, I think, is important. Questions have come up about testing for evidence of an immune response, such as measuring detection of spike antibody. We don't know what to make of this test in this setting, but it is one that is discussed as at least a marker of immune activation from the vaccine, although protective levels are not known particularly with different tests out there, continuing to use proper personal protection, i.e. don't be exposed to crowds or individuals who might be infected. And that's a dynamic issue, but it's one that I think we all have a better understanding given the discussion over the last year. So I think we need to be cautiously optimistic, but we need to continue with precautions in this population. What to do with boosters 
we'll boost our immunizations to see if we can augment the immune response, either to elicit a primary or if there's a primary immune response that is fading to boost it. We don't know what to do in this setting. It's an area of active investigation. And hopefully this will guide our thinking going into the fall, where due to changes in the weather, we may be forced to be in closer quarters. And what level of immune response do we want to maintain to afford optimal protection? But we need more data to guide us, especially in this setting, given the complexities of the immune response in this population. I'd also say that we have always taken precautions or urged patients to take precautions who are the most immunosuppressed. And often you'll see people who are, for example, recent bone marrow transplant recipients wearing masks in public long before the COVID-19 outbreak occurred. And that remains really important. It might go beyond the sort of people who are traditionally taking these precautions. There are particular subgroups, for example, those on anti-B cell therapies who are unable to mount adequate antibody responses have particularly poor responses as a group to vaccination. So I think that it's going to be important for clinicians to help patients think through their particular risk category. Lindsay, I'd also raise the question of antibody therapies as prophylaxis. Is there any role for monoclonal antibodies in preventing disease in these patients? Certainly, they've been used when people have been exposed, but passive immunization was one of the ways of controlling disease for a long time. Is it possible that this is a role for this therapy? I mean, I think that the issue of MABs or monoclonal antibodies is one of active discussion. And there are data where in nursing homes, when you know that the virus is introduced, one can protect other residents through passive antibody infusions. So we do have data on the ability to protect those who are exposed or likely to be exposed. How that works in this population is complicated. It depends on the circulating virus. It depends on the level of potential exposure. So it's an interesting idea, but who, when, how often, many more questions than we have answers. And so I think it's an area that hopefully will get some insight on where this might play a role. Thank you, Lindsay. And thank you, Eric.